I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Thought of Philosopher Charles Taylor. A Canadian philosopher has won the world's richest annual prize. Charles Taylor is a 75-year-old professor emeritus at McGill University. He was named winner of this year's Templeton Prize for progress toward research or discoveries about spiritual realities. The award is worth more than $1.5 million U.S. He's the first Canadian to be... When Charles Taylor won the 2007 Templeton Prize, it was the latest and most lucrative in a series of honors, awards, and accolades that have come his way in recent years. Born in Montreal and for many years a professor at McGill, he's now recognized and read around the world, his books translated into 22 languages. The Templeton Prize celebrated his work on the place of religion in the modern world. In a series of books, culminating in his magisterial A Secular Age, published that same year, Taylor had shown how a secular form of society developed in the West, and then explored the many ramifications and adaptations of religion under these new circumstances. When he accepted the prize, he spoke about the importance questions of meaning have always had in his work. Human beings, whether they admit it or not, live in a space of questions, very, very deep questions. What is the meaning of my life? Uh, What is a higher mode of life and a lower mode of life? What is really worthwhile? What is the basis of the dignity that I'm trying to define for myself? These are very deep hungers or searches or questions that people are asking all the time. And the basic thesis that I've been operating on, and it could sound very crazy and wrong to some people, but I really think it's true, is that everybody exists in this space of questions, whether they recognize it or not. Today on Ideas, David Cayley concludes his series on the work of Charles Taylor with an exploration of Taylor's thoughts on religion, both in his own life and as a formative influence on modern society. Here's David Cayley. In the last 20 years or so, there's been a lot of talk about what is sometimes called the return of religion. The idea, in brief, is that until fairly recently, religion was a waning force, undone by what was variously called development or modernization or secularization. But now it's come back, and back with a vengeance, according to those who fear and disparage what British biologist Richard Dawkins calls the God delusion. Charles Taylor's A Secular Age throws this whole story into question. The book argues, first of all, that secularization doesn't come about simply through the removal of religion. It's a child of religion, born and raised within Christianity and retaining the marks of this ancestry even after the parental bonds have been thrown off. Second, Taylor demonstrates that once a secular society is achieved, the spiritual impulse, formerly channeled by more or less compulsory religious institutions, remains vital and flows into an astonishing and exuberant variety of new forms. Religion, in other words, is a phenomenon that is both more foundational, part of modern secular society's genetic code, if you like, and more diffuse, than those who proclaimed its disappearance ever recognized. Charles Taylor's ability to see this was partly an effect of his own Christian faith. I don't mean that a secular age holds any special brief for Christianity. To me, the book seemed quite scrupulously fair in its treatment of all shades of religious opinion, including unbelief. It's rather that Taylor as a person of faith, is sensitive to the religious dimension in human life, aware, as he says near the beginning of the book, that we all see our lives, and the space in which we live our lives, as having a certain moral, spiritual shape, and we all, in some way, seek spiritual fulfillment. In the autumn of 2010, I spent several days at Charles Taylor's home in Quebec, recording interviews with him about his work. We talked about a secular age, but I asked him first about his own religious faith. 
I very much relate to people who talk today about this famous distinction between believing still and believing again, right? The idea of believing still is that people who are feel that they're, yeah, they're going on believing what their parents believe and their grandparents believe and for roughly the same reasons and in spite of all, you know, like the Gilbert and Sullivan, in spite of all temptation to belong to other nations, he remains an Englishman. Well, <laughs> in spite of all temptation to go somewhere else, they're, they're, they're there. And then there's another very common experience today called, which this is the famous distinction made by Auden, one of his believing again, that is, without really close connection to those original set of reasons that you were given, by a really different route you come to feel, see, sense that this faith position is one you want to, you know, very much are drawn to, want to adhere to, and so on. And my experience is very much the believing again type of experience. That is, it seemed anyway at the time that what I was being drawn to the set of reasons that I was being drawn to, uh, the faith was so different from the kind of thing I got in catechism class that um, it was quite a surprise. And so that, in that sense, that's not exactly a conversion, but very definitely a mode of believing again is, my, is what I feel myself to have done and what I relate to. Charles Taylor was born in Montreal in 1931, and raised in the Roman Catholic religion of his mother. The church in which he grew up in the 1930s and 40s was still very much in the grip of the reactionary mood that had seized Roman Catholicism in the middle years of the 19th century. Liberalism, modernism, and secularism were all condemned, church doctrine frozen, the drawbridge pulled up. In response to this siege mentality, a movement of theological renewal arose in the Roman Church. In France, one of its centers was a journal called Esprit. Its influence was transmitted to Quebec through the journal Cité Libre. In the early 1960s, Charles Taylor joined Pierre Trudeau and Gérard Pelletier among its editors, and together they studied the new theologians. We read all these people, at a time when they looked as though they were never going to have any influence, they were being silenced and told to shut up and so on by the authorities in the church under Pius XII. But they did something very interesting. They were under, under a cloud because there was a terrible thing called modernism, which had been nailed by Pius X back in the beginning of the 20th century, right? But in actual fact, they did something very interesting. They went back to the fathers of the church and they say, well, look, let's go back. Let's get our sources, ressourcements, you know, get back into the sources, the, the deeper sources of the faith, and then sit down and say, well, what does this mean for us in the 20th century? Or we could say now 20th, 21st century, right? So they did a kind of end run around the modernist uh, band by saying, well, look, you know, uh, let's get really resourced. And when they did get really resourced back there, they could show that what was being presented as the age-old faith <laughs> damaged by modernism was actually a relatively modern invention, very much, as it were, commanded by what was then felt to be the struggle against liberalism and democracy and so on. And so it was intellectually incredibly coherent and spiritually very captivating. The highest assembly of the Roman Catholic Church, the Ecumenical Council, has opened at the Vatican in Rome. The council is the first to be held in 92 years, and only the second in 400 years. The Second Vatican Council, Vatican II as it became known, convened in Rome in 1962 and remained in session for more than three years. The church that emerged from it was one in which Charles Taylor felt a lot more at home. The Council incorporated in its statements many of the ideas of the new theologians by whom he had been captivated. And it renounced the clericalism, the domination of the laity by the clergy, that had thrived during the era when the Church had seen itself as the last bastion in the battle with modernity. The Church is, first of all, the people of God. The Church 
is not primarily the hierarchy. The hierarchy are making, playing a role in it, but the church is the people of God. So this totally top-down structure, this structure which gives the clergy some kind of higher status in the whole in the whole church, which we call clericalism, is profoundly against the thrust of the church. Now, finally, Vatican II comes out with the famous statement on the church as the as the people of God. Again, when you take the long view, go back to the fathers, take the long view, which these theologians did, you begin to understand that just as the church ends up being some ways differently inflected in one culture and another culture and on China and India and Greek culture, so it becomes differently inflected over the ages and right, in the climate of different epochs. And what you have to be able to do is discern what is really part of the continuing faith and how it is differently inflected, differently developed in different ages. So you get the a liberation of the Christian faith from over-identification with one particular age, one particular form, one particular society. That's something which is not just directed against the then existing hierarchy of the Catholic Church. It's, of course, it also has a relevance for the all of European or European-derived Christianity, where there was very often a tendency totally to identify the faith with how it had developed here. Vatican II reimagined the church in a form that was much more congenial to Charles Taylor than the embattled institution of his youth. He still has his differences with the hierarchy, but being a Catholic for him has never meant agreeing point for point with the leaders of the church. Were that so, he says, he never would have rejoined the church in the first place. From the very beginning, when I became very strongly a Catholic, I was in a predicament where, you know, this outlook, what I saw as Catholicism, wasn't really being put forward by the hierarchy, quite the contrary. So the fact that they're once again, I think, slipping back is not, uh, I regret it, but it's not any for me any reason to, to step out, to leave. On the contrary, it's a reason to stay in and go on fighting, fighting our corner. And where have you stood on divisive questions within the church, like abortion, let's say, or yeah. contraception? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've stood mostly uh, against what the decisions uh, have come down to be made. See, on on abortion, it's more complicated. I don't think, you know, you can say that abortion is simply another operation like tonsillectomy that people might choose to make. And people who think that, I ask them to consider how they would look on how they do look on, widespread abortion in India by people who discover that their child is going to be a girl. <laughs> they don't, you know, it's very important not to have a girl or China, and they abort the child. You know, I mean, I think that people who say this is a free choice are really in a philosophical, philosophically impossible position. On the other hand, I'm very strongly against outlawing it because. There's something very powerful to be said for allowing a conscientious decision to be made and be carried through on, unless you have very good social reasons for combating this or denying this or, or restricting it, like the cases I've been talking about in India and China. So the way I come down is that we shouldn't have actual laws against abortion, but the whole philosophy of it's just your choice is, to me, very, very wrong-headed. And that means that I also find, I have to add a, another the codicil to that, when I see what's happening on the U.S. scene, I'm revolted. The absolute obsessive focusing on this as against everything else, the attempt to uh, delegitimate Catholic politicians who take the position I take, and so on, I find it ridiculous to make that the only criterion. So, example, when the Health Act was going through or not going through in the U.S. Congress, the hierarchy totally piled on the issue of whether there should be funding for, for abortion and so on. And they were perfectly willing to put in jeopardy a law which would allow the 40 million Americans without health care to get you know, health insurance. 
in order to focus on this. And this is, this is ridiculous. If you're a politician, you've got to make all-in decisions you know, about what's more important. So you can't have a monomaniac position if you're a responsible politician. I'm going to support the people who are against abortion, even though they include a maniac who's going to lead us all into a war, in which, you know, which it did in the case of Bush. It's a really absolutely unacceptable uh, idea of what a political, responsible political figure is. And I think this is something... Uh, so even if I agreed with them on that, I would think their whole behavior is uh, you know, very, very condemnable. The condemnable behavior of the American Roman Catholic hierarchy in the debate over health care, as Charles Taylor sees it, grows out of a mistaken idea of what the church properly is. He sees it as what he calls a network society, something that moves person to person, rather than, his word again, a categorical one, that is, a community that lives by following rules. The problem for him is not that there are disagreements within the church. There will always be disagreements, but that the leaders of the church try to suppress them. There are certain issues that seem to me to be obviously issues that can't be just declared settled forever. Like, for instance, uh, contraception. I don't take the same view as the church, but I, you know, I would be quite willing to go on debating this if people think otherwise. Women in the priesthood, I take a totally different position from the Vatican, but I'd like, you know, I'd like to go on discussing it. And I think that the whole way of operating of the hierarchy of the church today is just totally, not only bad, wrong, but counterproductive because, in fact, there are bishops that agree with me on some of these things, I know. But no one says anything. It's thought to be absolutely out of the question that they say anything. And so the church is kind of trying to behave like the Chinese Communist Party. Now, the whole, I would say, <laughs> the whole vocation of a pastor is to, when he gives you advice of how you should be, is to be really leveling with you. And the idea that they aren't leveling with you I mean, put it in two levels. First of all, that's the nature of the vocation is to level with you. Secondly, partly because of that, if they don't level with you, they destroy totally their credibility. And that's what they're doing now. They're, they have just zero credibility with, with lots and lots and lots of people. Let me just ask it bluntly. Why not belong to a faith community that comes closer to your own sense of how things are? Well, because I, the why church... Be, why be a Roman Catholic? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's the key question. You see, the, for me, what's important in the church, as against certain very conservative Catholics who think what's important in the church is that it makes all these decisions for us and so on, I think what's important in the church is that it's a sacramental communion, and it really it's a body in which the sacraments play a central role, particularly as the Eucharist. So I could only really feel I was at home or I, whatever the word is in the present Catholic Church or one of the Orthodox churches or arguably perhaps the Anglican Church. I couldn't feel really at home in Baptist Church or, you know, others of that kind where the sacrament isn't so central. And you see, the thing is that that to me is the main reasons to be a Catholic. So that the argument in the church is very interesting because it's not as though we all agreed on what the main point of being a Catholic is. The deep disagreement is on that. And when you take my reason for being Catholic, there's no reason for me to leave, but on the contrary, reason to stay in and try to cure this, I think, power trip on which some of these people have been. But for other Catholics, the power trip is the point. Charles Taylor's membership in the Roman Catholic Church is not something to which he has usually drawn attention in his writings, though there are exceptions. 
An award from the Catholic University of Dayton in 1996 elicited a lecture published as A Catholic Modernity? The title had a question mark, in which he spoke as a Christian about the situation of the church in the modern world and of his hopes, fears, and prayers for it. But generally, as I said at the outset, his faith has manifested itself in his work as an underlying sensitivity to questions of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. This is true of A Secular Age, the nearly 900-page magnum opus that he published in 2007. One of its central arguments is that a secular society does not come about by what he calls subtraction, by just taking away religion, as if religion were a kind of encrustation or priestly imposition on an unchanging human nature. Scrape away the crust, and there's your basic human being, just as he or she always was. Taylor's view is that secular society is a positive, hard-won, and very gradual achievement which changes how people understand themselves in fundamental ways. In the course of thinking about modernization, you know, I came across these two ways of looking at it. And one was a view that, well, human beings are always basically very much the same. Everybody's really an instrumental individual, but then in earlier societies, they're given a bad conscience about that. They're not allowed to be that, or else they're told there's something else important in, in another life you have to take account of. So when you take those things away, what steps out is the human beings. They really are stripped down from these interfering factors. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is seeing that people really change, that the cultures really bring out a totally different side of people. And that's the kind of explanation that I thought we'd have to have of how we moved from societies in which it was, for many people, unthinkable not to believe in God to societies where if you're in the U.S. Bible Belt and so on, and one thing, if you're in Harvard Faculty Club, it's another thing. But they both have to recognize that they're in the society with the other gang. But the onus or the default position in these two different media is just totally opposed, totally opposite. The fact that the Bible Belt and the Harvard Faculty Club exist in the same world and in some way take account of one another exemplifies what Charles Taylor calls the contemporary conditions of belief. Belief and unbelief are choices and recognized as such by those who exercise them. 500 years ago, this was not the case. There was doctrinal controversy. There was violent antipathy to particular religious authorities, but the existence of God was a given. How religion became optional is the story Taylor tells in a secular age. It begins, he argues, with the attempt to reform Christianity, which began in the Middle Ages and blossomed in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. The keynote for him was the attempt to replace the feasts and festivals, parades and pilgrimages of the Middle Ages with a more austere, more godly, more inward and personal form of Christianity. The reformers wanted people to live up to the demands of their religion and become, as Taylor puts it, 100% Christian by building an orderly and disciplined Christian society. We have to look at what was driving this whole reform movement. And what was driving it, I think, was some sense that in order to reform, go back to what the religion was originally about, we have to reform our lives. I mean, not just you know have a different set of views. We have to act differently. We have to accept new disciplines and new modes of, of acting, which can clear out all the easy compromises with the world and sin and so on, which were current before. So this very strong drive, which expressed itself in various kinds of disciplines, Discipline, social disciplines, discipline of the self. I mean, social disciplines involving you know, getting rid of disorder. Carnival, for instance, was kicked out in, in most Protestant countries. You know, the Maldi Carnival, dancings in the church, and uh, all these things were, these practices were cleaned up. A more strict sexual ethic was to be enforced on people. And they were to, in, in 
more educated people were to undergo some kind of discipline, self-discipline in which they could control themselves. And you see the effects of this moving like a kind of vector in European culture. Someone like Norbert Elias has studied the breakdown of the sense of promiscuous intimacy, the sense of being surrounded by your own personal space. And the thing is very amusing because he does this by looking at etiquette books, books for improving yourself in the earlier centuries. And they say horrifying things like, well, don't blow your nose in the tablecloth when you're at dinner. (laughs) Don't defecate on the stairs. (laughs) So, I mean, the horrifying thought is that people had to be told to do this. And now, now it's funny. I mean, the thing that we could tell somebody not to do this is funny because we've all become the kind of people that recoil from that. In his book, The Civilizing Process, Norbert Elias charts the emergence of a code of self-restraint in Europe after the 16th century. This was one of many social disciplines that Taylor sees developing during this period. And these new disciplines were reinforced, he says, by the remarkable results they achieved. What comes out of all this is that the acceptance of these social and individual disciplines involved a great increase in power in all sorts of ways. In, for instance, social power. I mean, I talked to them earlier about organizing quarantine and thereby being able to avoid the spread of plague so you can defend yourself against this by organization. Of course, in new kinds of military organization, which were much more effective, the kind that got introduced in the Dutch Civil War and then later with Cronel's new model army and then finally the Prussian (laughs) parade square and so on, in educational institutions, in prisons, in hospitals, And indeed, on a broader scale, organization of the whole society by the development of a dedicated civil service, as you see in Prussia, that can really introduce reforms and organization that can make the society much more effective. Prussia is a wonderful example because here you get a coming together of Calvinism and Pietism, even in a majority Lutheran society, to produce these kind of cadres, these elite, that could organize the society more effectively and organize the army more effectively, so that Prussia is kind of a miracle. That is, it's a society much smaller and less rich than its big neighbors, but that managed to be one of the great powers of the 18th century, you know, game of alliances, you know, Prussia, Austria, France, Britain, Russia, and so on. It was one of the big players playing at the top table where it was much smaller and less rich less populous and less rich than the others. So this great power, as it were, accrued in all sorts of ways, political, military, and of course, uh, technology is also part of this power. I mean, science and technology are also part of this increasing power. There's a package. And I believe that a sense arose from this. First of all, we're on a roll. We human beings are on a roll. This is not the end of this story we're potentially moving ahead, right? The idea of progress begins to come in. So it's not surprising that we get in Europe what I call a vector, really meaning that there also was another forward push, right? A further reform, which seemed to be a good thing to do, and further disciplines and so on. And these conferred power on those who went right. through them. Right? So there was a constant, yeah. you'll pardon the expression, positive feedback. Positive feedback. And the ones who didn't go along with this were just walked over, you see. And the, the societies that didn't reform like this were just militarily swallowed or pushed to the side. So this, as it were, positive feedback, this loop, both ensures that the vector is going to continue, but also ensures that the vector will begin to have another meaning as a very important aspect of its meaning for people, namely the power itself. I mean, there's much more successful and effective as against we are doing the will of God. And this kind of shift in the center of gravity of what the point of the operation is, right, 
can go farther very easily. It can go to the point where somebody wants wants to say, well, do we need God in the same? I mean, you know, do we need grace? We seem to be doing it ourselves. Do we need God to save us from famine or plague or foreign conquest? It's kind of the sense of we're doing it ourselves. I think there is that growing confidence in human beings, coupled with the idea this is going to go on. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 137. Today's program is the final episode in our series on the thought of Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. It's presented by David Cayley. In A Secular Age, Charles Taylor explains how certain modern societies were able to move from a condition in which belief in God was axiomatic, the world simply could not be conceived in any other way, to a condition in which belief has become one option among others, and in some quarters, quite an unusual one. One way in which this happened was through the naturalization of what Taylor calls the modern moral order. As the world of order, progress, and mutual benevolence grew more stable and more entrenched, it became easier and easier to believe that this was a state of affairs that human beings could bring about and sustain on their own. Another change that was required was in people's conception of time. The word secular refers to time. Seculum in Latin meant, first of all, a human lifetime, and then, by extension, an historical age. But in the Middle Ages, this secular time could only be conceived in relation to eternity. One could no more think of one without the other than one could think of an up without a down or a front without a back. The achievement of modernity, Taylor says, was to make time uniform. What this kind of organized world requires is a very disciplined time sense. It's a kind of time and motion type of control. And then you get the insistence on the part of the Galvanist divines and don't waste time. Don't make sure that every bit of your time is dedicated to doing the will of God and pursuing his purposes. Don't goof off, if you like. Don't just let time slip by. Now, this goes along, understandably, with if you're looking at time as something that you manage like this, you begin to take an instrumental, rational stance to time. It's something you're managing, not a medium you're in which have, may have very many different facets and which you could never totally command a view of as a whole. Now, at that point, earlier understandings of time, which were multiple and not single, with the idea of higher time, begin to fade away before an understanding of time which is this manageable resource, which is purely, therefore, profane time. Now, what I mean by higher times are things like, well, eternity, various kinds of eternity. Plato is one kind of eternity, the unchanging ideas that are the basis of for the changing objects that participate in them in the world around us. But there was another Christian idea of eternity, which you see in Augustine and elsewhere, which is the kind of gathering of time that people who live at very different times come together in a kind of communion because in the presence of God, they're all brought together. God is the nunc stans, the presence that is always there. So that's another notion of a kind of time that isn't the time of, of ordinary, profane, one damn thing after another. <laughs> and so you get very clearly their view about certain places and certain times, like some center of pilgrimage of the high feast, it's some in some way that is a moment in profane time which is closer to this higher time than other moments in profane time, right? This profane one after another time is broken through with, as it were, vertical spikes 
that move higher here and there. And that tends to disappear as well in this world where discipline means control. Control means controlling time. Controlling time means seeing time as a resource. And there's no room for time is something more than a resource. Time is a, as something that can carry us into a higher place. The leveling of time that Charles Taylor describes has both a practical and a theoretical dimension. It's an idea about what time is, and at the same time, it's a set of practices, like not wasting time. The relationship between the two is one of mutual reinforcement. The idea fosters the practice, the practice strengthens the idea, and they advance together. Taylor sees all the other changes he's been talking about in the same light. A world without God becomes thinkable, finally, because the order in which people are living begins to feel like a self-sufficient reality. Time gets flattened, the world gets seen as a resource, control becomes terribly important. And this, of course, contributes further to disenchantment, right? All these things are a package. But then this makes it possible to step out, as it were, of the whole Christian story. That the sense of really needing God, either because we're, he's fighting off the spirits of the woods or because he's helping us to be better and more organized or whatever, that sense of needing God wanes. Well, then why should people step out? Well, because there also is another factor here. The Christian church makes then and now a lot of people very mad. And, you know, when you think of the power of the clergy, how they were pushing people around, how they were in some cases exploiting them, sucking uh, resources towards them, imposing these disciplines and so on. There's a huge, in any kind of Christian society, there's a huge, I think, particularly maybe Catholic society with a very heavy authority, there's a huge mass of resentment which is moving around there. Right? Now, resentment, if it's un inconceivable you'd be without God, the resentment, the, the worst the resentment can do is move you to another heretical, from that point of view, heretical position, another version of Christianity or maybe another version of of theism. But now the possibility exists of saying, look, uh, we have this sort of order which is natural. There's an intermediate stage where you say we have this natural order which is benign and God made it so he's a good guy and it's providential. But when you've been through that phase, you can go a step farther and say, well, you know, maybe he didn't make it, but you know, he's not really important anymore and it's running, he's set it going. So who needs it? The possibility of stepping out of religion, Charles Taylor says, grew out of the sense that the world has its own inherent order. Initially, this was seen as a providential design. It was an order intended and installed by God. But the more effectively it was institutionalized and the more confident people became, the less God seemed necessary to account for it. We get an understanding of our predicament as existing in a number of impersonal orders. I mean, the impersonal order of obviously the universe is discovered by science, but also the impersonal order of the liberal law, you know, Rechtstaat, I mean, law governed state, the impersonal order of the right rules, the right moral rules, and so on. So we see people see themselves, we see ourselves as living in this kind of ordered condition that all everything fits together. And it, none of it, just as a set of conditions of order, necessarily speaks of, the, of a God that might be beyond and might have made it. That God doesn't, as it were, automatically shine through or impose itself the way it did for in 1500 and the way it did in another way for some of these earlier you know, people with a deistic view. Misunderstanding besets a lot of contemporary discussion of religion. 
in part because of the wildly divergent ways in which words like religion or belief can be used. For one, belief can denote a trusting reach into the unknowable. For another, a definite body of knowledge held to with absolute assurance. Religion can be defined in a way that makes almost everyone religious, simply by their possessing firm convictions about how one should live, and therefore some implicit sense of life's meaning. Or it can be defined restrictively, taking in only those who observe a formal religious rite. One of the virtues of Charles Taylor's A Secular Age is that it takes a very broad view of religion. It argues that a secular society grew by a series of transformations out of a religious society and probably could not have come into being in any other way. Religion, in this sense, is built into the foundations of many of our institutions and therefore conserved even in the lives of those who have ostensibly outgrown it. The book also shows the continuing vitality of what might be called the religious impulse, even where a seemingly self-sufficient secular society has been achieved and many thoughtful people have come to see religion as either incredible or unnecessary or both. One of the places spiritual-seeking migrates, Taylor argues, is into art. My thesis is that since the Romantic period, we have what I call subtler languages where, as it were, the, the languages of poetry are created and recreated to evoke something, but they aren't clearly linked to a set of ontological beliefs. I mean, the way in which earlier poetry or earlier portrayals in art, you know, history painting built on historical events, religious painting built on the events of the you know, birth and the crucifixion and so on. So you have linked very clearly to metaphysical or religious beliefs. We have a playing out in an artistic presentation. That since the, since the beginning of the 19th century, in a sense, in our culture, you have poems and you have, of course, music and you have painting, where something is evoked, but you're not quite clear what the ontological commitments are. My good example of that is words for ontological time, commitments meaning meaning what the what you have to believe exists really right. in order for okay. the poetry to make sense to you. Okay. So you know, some, my good example of that is someone like Wordsworth talking about a, a force moving all through all things through nature and myself and so I've forgotten the the exact quote from the prelude. So I stand here in the world and nature and there's something moving through me, it's not just me, but it's a force moving through me and us through us all. But it's left extremely indeterminate what that is. I mean, you could say, ah, this is uh, some recognition of God, the force of God, and you could say, no, it's some recognition of the way we feel and so on. You know, there's room for, it's kind of invitation for an incredible number of possible interpretations, which it can be lived through these interpretations. That is, I, as a believing Christian, might, you know, will, might find something in that work very, very resonant for me. And then someone else, as a completely different something else, would find something else. Now, a great deal of art is spiritually exploratory in just that sense. It's invoking something important, but it isn't totally tied to a particular interpretation of this exists, that it doesn't exist, or whatever. Take your ontological interpretation. These languages leap out of the tracks of the traditional theological languages, the traditional languages of prayer, which are linked to that. They leap out of that, but they don't, they're not presenting this big, clear theological or metaphysical alternative. The arts explore spiritual domains without ever committing themselves to a definite dogma or practice, Charles Taylor says. They leap out of the tracks, in his evocative expression, inventing new symbols and, through these symbols, new dimensions of religious meaning. This is one example of what Taylor calls the Nova effect, 
by which, to follow his metaphor, the star of religion explodes into a luminous and expanding cloud of new possibilities. This galloping pluralism, as Taylor has also called it, where fragmentation begets further fragmentation, is something about which he has mixed feelings. He can see the good in it, but also the pitfalls. The good thing is that it really is a liberation of people to follow their own spiritual inspiration, whatever it is, and be on their own spiritual path. But these options, deep religious options, they just aren't, they are obvious for everyone. You have to be given a certain language in which to understand them and talk about them. For instance, for Christians, a language that comes out of the Bible or the language that's been formulated by theology or through prayers that are part of them. And for lots and lots of people today, these languages are not immediately available. So we get something that everybody notices, even people who you know don't have any interest in religion. When you're lecturing to kids today, to students today, you know, you make reference to the Bible or a reference to <laughs> quoting from Shakespeare as well, but, you know, the references are obviously just not getting across. These things are not familiar. So there is this real problem. There's a hunger for spirituality. There is the freedom, even the encouragement, mostly to follow your whatever line. But a lot of the possibilities are not immediately available to people. They don't understand them. They find them very strange and weird. They haven't got a sense of what this language is talking about. So it's like, you know, I want to be a poet. I want to express myself, but I haven't yet found my language. But the languages that are being babbled around me are foreign and I can't learn. I haven't... Eh. I haven't learned them, and I may, I may never learn them because they may always remain foreign. Charles Taylor sees the accumulated wisdom of tradition as an indispensable resource for the spiritual seeker. But that doesn't mean that he thinks tradition provides all the answers. Blind obedience and rigid adherence to inherited codes is for him no better than people striking out on their own without compass or guide. In his view, the promising path, and the one he tries to walk, lies between these extremes. In a sense, what we have today is a kind of struggle of interpretations between understandings of religion, which occur in different ways in different faiths, in terms of some fixed code. You know, we can see what it is to be a Christian, what it is to be a Muslim. Here is the code that you have to abide by, and that's it, on one hand, and other ways of living these religions on the other, which have always been there, which are, in a way, like modes of search. I mean, all the Sufis, all the people we call mystics, have been all convinced we don't really know God, we don't really understand God. We want to know more, we want to understand more. So we're going through some process, maybe discipline, maybe prayer, maybe meditation, and so on, in order to, to move forward. These people have a completely different outlook from, let's say, the code uh, appliers, <laughs> because they don't take it for granted that we know exactly what God wants and that we understand exactly what following God means. Huh? They're on a, on a path, right? And now we get a polarization which is very unfortunate in our world, between certain kind of very orthodox, people think of themselves as orthodox religious believers of various kinds, and this world of searchers, who are spiritual but not religious, meaning they don't want to be <laughs> enrolled clearly in any one of these traditions. And they both, in a way, are strengthening each other because from the standpoint of the, the searchers, I mean, they can't understand very often what the point is of a kind of religion where it's all already settled because they can't see how, you know, how would that all be so clear from the word go? And then from the other side, you hear people saying, well, these people are like in a cafeteria, they're taking a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and they haven't got, you know. 
any kind of coherent position. So both sides feel strengthened in their own righteousness, I mean, the rightness of their position by looking at what the other side represents. And in fact, I would like to argue that, a, not everything, but a great deal of what is arresting and important and interesting in different faiths today is on the part of people who have, who are in the middle of this. That is, who have a profound faith commitment, but don't have this kind of, everything is wrapped up, <laughs> clearly, certainty of what it exactly means, particularly today, and who are therefore identified with neither of these positions, but is in some ways drawing on both. See? It's, these are people, they all have a faith commitment by definition I'm talking about, but who are drawing on this tradition, maybe even more than one, but see themselves as also searching. We'd like to know more and feel more and be more clear and anchored in what our relationship with God, if that's the way we put it, amounts to and calls for. And the interesting now positive phenomenon that I see arising in our world is among these people that I just described from different faiths who are discovering that they can talk to each other, that there can be even friendships developed by frank exchange. And this kind of discussion widens to include atheists, to include atheist agnostics and so on, who who have the minimum entrance requirement, which is just respect for the other. I mean, if angry atheists obviously aren't interlocutors, and nor are people who think that outside the church (laughs) is only darkness. And something extraordinarily powerful is happening in these kind of spaces in our world. Charles Taylor finds that the things that most interest him in discussions of religion are going on, as he says, in the middle. Characteristically, he locates himself neither on the side of tradition nor innovation, but in the dialogue between them. This emphasis on dialogue has marked his entire career and seems a fitting enough place to end my sketch of it. His career, meanwhile, continues A new collection of essays called Dilemmas and Connections has just appeared. A long postponed book on language is in preparation. My thanks, finally, to Charles Taylor and to his wife, Aubillard, for their hospitality to me while I was recording these programs. On Ideas, you've listened to the final episode of our five-hour series, The Malaise of Modernity, Charles Taylor in Conversation. This series is available as a podcast at cbc.ca slash podcasting, or it can be streamed from our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there and find out about upcoming programs. Today's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley, with the help of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Our webmaster is Liz Nagy. Archival research, Ken Pewley. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The Hourly News is next. <laughs>